Conversations. Hello everyone, welcome to Med Conversations. I'm Scott and this is... I'm Beck. Thanks for tuning in. Um, less than the customary three-month wait in between podcasts. So thanks, Scott, for putting this one together for us. What are we talking about? So today we're going to talk about Staph aureus bacteremia. Sorry about the raspy voice. Um, and there's some really good learning points in this one. And I think if you listen through, you realize that it's actually a really good topic to talk about. Yeah. I'm really glad you've picked this topic because I think it's something that I underestimated the importance of when I was a medical student and then I became an intern and suddenly this became my responsibility. So if you and your husky voice can take us through it, I think that is a very good idea. So tell me about Pam. So Pamela Pamlington is a 76-year-old lady who presented to hospital with shortness of breath on exertion, orthopnea, swollen legs, but no fever. She's got a history of CCF, mitral valve replacement and right hip replacement so she's a gen med patient she's pretty much your most standard garden variety gen med patient that you'll find at least in a first world country so you do your workup you sound so worldly well you know we're not the whole world (laughs) i don't know who's listening probably most people from uh, specifically melbourne but anyway um so chest x-ray shows some interstitial edema some cardiomegaly so you treat her for exacerbation CCF with some IV fruzamide and she's kind of getting better. And this is kind of your most standard kind of hospitalization scenario there is. But day four on the ward, she's got some increasing confusion and a cough and a fever. And you do another chest X-ray during the day, which shows still the old interstitial edema, but there's some new left lobar consolidation. So you send off some blood cultures and your team starts her on IV keftriaxone. And all, all good, at just about at five o'clock, you're ready to leave for happy hour, get some espresso martinis in you, and the lab calls you. And what do they say, Beck? Um, so they tell you that there's gram-positive cocci in clusters in that blood culture that you did, and they resemble staph. So now this is the question we'll be answering through the podcast, but is this important? Like, do you care? Do you just go and... Start smashing down drinks and say, we'll leave it for tomorrow. She's already on antibiotics or is this important? Yeah, well, I think that this lecture is going to um, fill anyone who does that with a sufficient amount of guilt that Mm. the answer will become evident. Martini guilt. Right. So this is why you should feel martini guilt because it is important and definitely needs a bit more of a workup. So I thought we'd start this one with a quick kind of general microbiology revision to kind of remind us what staph is. So just to really quickly revise, all kind of animals or species or whatever are named with their genus name and their species name. Yeah, got it. And you've got... So Staphylococcus is the genus, Aureus is the species. Yeah. And they're divided between gram-negatives and gram-positives based on um, the thickness of their peptidoglycan cell wall. You might remember that from med school or wherever. Um. But something that I found really helpful, which no one ever told me until recently, is if you want to remember what's gram-negative and gram-positive, gram-negative being pink and gram-positive being purple, um, from the way it stains out, um, there's a really easy rule. And that's if the genus has coccus in the name, it's a gram-positive. So you three big gram-positive um, genuses are your staphylococcus, your streptococcus, and your enterococcus. And there's a few other gram-positive rods as well, like Clostridium listeria and Bacillus. 
But if you see cockers in the name, it's gram positive. However, there are cocci, so round bacteria, as opposed to bacilli, which are rod-shaped bacteria. So there are cocci which are gram negative. But they don't have cocci in the name. They don't have cocci in the genus name. That's right. So it's just a quick little rule to help you remember. So if you can remember those three big genera and um, as the gram positives, along with just a couple of other gram positive rods, you can then say everything else is gram negative. It's kind of a good little memorization rule. But just to quickly go through some kind of common examples. So gram positive, what are we thinking, Beck? What are your big groups? So the big ones, Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, Enterococcus, Clostridium, Listeria. And then the gram negatives, E. coli, Enterobacter, Neisseria, Meningitidis. So this is a good one to apply your rule. That's a coccus, but it's gram negative because it's not called Neisseria coccus or anything like that. Mm. It is called meningococcemia, just to remind you. Yeah. Um, and then some other big gram-negative bacteria to know would be Klebsiella, Proteus, Moraxella, Campylobacter jejuni, and Pseudomonas. So if we're talking about gram-positive bacteria, some of the important ones. So you've got your Staphylococcus aureus and your Streptococcus. So, Beck, do you know what the kind of classical difference is, like um, if you're looking on a gram stain? between staph and strep, given that they're both gram-positive cocci? Yeah, so they actually look quite different. When staph grows, it grows in a sort of 3D configuration. So that's your, your classic bunch of grapes. And that's why staphylococcus grows in clusters. And then the word for the way that streptococcus grows is chains. So yeah, they grow in sort of... I used to always remember strep is straps. Okay, that's a good one. Because strep comes... Streptos... Comes from the Greek word twisted because it grows in chains because they reproduce only in one axis. So if you think about it, when the bacteria reproduce, they're kind of forming little lines. So they're in kind of chains which can be twisted. Whereas staph, like Beck said, reproduce in a 3D way. So they've got lots of different axes when they reproduce. So staphylia means grapes and mm, aureus means again? golden. Staphylia. Staphylia. <laughs> and um, because they kind of clusters together in these little groups of bacteria that look like bunches of grapes. And they're called golden because macroscopically, not through the gram stain, but through the microscope, the colonies are yellow. Mm. So there's also another way of the people in the lab telling the difference, and that's looking at whether it's catalase positive or catalase negative. And we're not going to talk about that now, except to say that catalase is a different thing to coagulase. Staphylococcal organisms are all catalase positive, um, and that's a way of differentiating them from streps, which are catalase negative. So once you've decided that it's catalase positive and you think it looks like a staph, then you do a test to see if they're coagulase positive or negative. So what's coagulase? So coagulase is an enzyme which enables conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. And it's really important clinically because it helps us differentiate between gram, sorry, coagulase positive staphylococci. Like which, staph aureus. Like staph, staph aureus is, if you see coagulase positive cocci, it's pretty much staph aureus. The, on, the only other one you'll see is um, staph intermediates in humans infected by dogs, pretty much. Like, th- you see coag positive, think staph aureus, pretty much most of the time clinically. Mm, okay. And um, what if you see coag negative? So, I guess everything else. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much everything else. So there's a few different um, staph. And the input, like there's um, staph epidermidis, st- um, staphylococcus, staphylococcus, 
um, lugged in, lugged in incense and lots of other ones. And the important thing is most of these um, are skin commensals and they're, um, these coag negatives are often contaminants. Um, however, they can also be pathogenic. Mm. And this is actually something that I, I only just learned that um, you, when you see a coag negative staphylococcus in someone's blood, normally I'm not really too worried. I say it's probably a contaminant, but we should be worried about everybody just in case they're one of those 12 to 25% that are pathogenic. And we should be very worried if this is a patient who looks like they might have endocarditis and who has a device in their heart. So if they've got a, a pacemaker and they grow staph epidermidis, that's a concern because 40% of cardiac intracardiac device-associated infective endocarditis are caused by coagulase negative staphylococcus. 40%, so that's huge. Yeah, which is, actually one which of is pretty surprising. Causes. Because the main point, um, particularly for your med student, we want you to come away with here, is if you see coag negative, think usually a contaminant. But just remember, it's not always a contaminant. And as Beck said, in people with um, uh, cardiac devices, you do have to think about uh, pathogenic bacteremia and infective endocarditis. Mm, I might have confused things a little bit. So I guess the, the main thing to take away, so is Staphylococcus aureus gram positive or gram negative? Time for thinking, gram positive. Is it catalase positive or catalase negative? This bit's a bit less important if you're not a BPT. It's catalase positive. And is Staphylococcus aureus coagulase positive or coagulase negative? And this is the important bit. So it's coagulase positive. Yeah, so very positive. Happy, happy bacteria. Positive everything. Gram positive, catalase positive, coagulase positive. And it's gold. So really it's just yeah. positive. So you'll hear about golden staph in the newspaper and they're talking about staph aureus. But in the hospital, you hear a lot of different acronyms around staph. There's kind of eight or ten different ones on this page. I just thought we'd go through quickly to help you not get confused by them. So let's kind of start working our way through them. So probably the most common one you'll see is MSSA, um, as in written down in a hospital chart maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that stand for, Beck? So that's methicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus. But I've never seen methicillin used on the ward, Beck. Why do they call it methicillin-sensitive? I don't know, Scott. I suspect it's some <laughs> kind of a historical thing. But it's a it's like a marker for flucloxacillin and oxacillin, which I've also never seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so depending on the country, they'll use different drugs from this class of penicillins, which are called beta-lactamase-resistant penicillins. And this class includes flucloxacillin, methicillin, oxacillin, um, and they're... In Australia, we usually use flucloxacillin, but um, these are a class of beta-lactamase-resistant penicillins. So I think that this is a this is something probably a little bit too much detail for the more junior medical students, but um, getting a little bit more into the weeds. Why would we use a beta-lactamase-resistant penicillin? What's a what what is what are beta-lactamases? So beta-lactamases are something which bacteria produce to protect themselves from um, beta-lactam drugs, which include penicillins. So you might hear about um, ESBLs, and also, um, even as we're talking about now, a lot of Staph aureus um, bacteria produce these beta-lactamases, and beta-lact- um, which are enzymes which break down um, the beta-lactam group in the penicillins. But these beta-lactamase-resistant penicillins have some resistance against these these enzymes and they'll still work against these um, um, beta-lactamase producing bacteria. So what about, what's PSSA? 
What does that mean? What does that stand for? So that's penicillin sensitive Staphylococcus aureus. And that just means it's sensitive to everything. So you can give them any kind of penicillins. And it means that you should give them penicillins. You always go with the narrowest spectrum thing you can. This is common or rare? Um, PSSA. So it's reasonably uncommon. Um, estimates range from around like 5% of current staffs, depending on your population and things like that. Yeah. But I think that's a really good learning point you brought up, Beck, because I think particularly as a junior doctor, you have this idea that kind of the broader spectrum in antibiotic, the more powerful it is, but that's not true at all. Often, if you have a narrower spectrum antibiotic, it'll work much faster and kill more effectively a specific bacteria, Mm. whereas a broader one might be kind of works against a lot of things, but a lot slower, like a... Jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And and to be honest, I would say that this is very uncommon. I think 5% is pretty uncommon. So you need to, when you see someone with a staph, you need to assume that mm, it's going to be in the true. 95% of staphs that can't be treated with penicillin. So penicillin is never first line treatment for staphylococcus unless you know the sensitivities. So that's PSSA and MSSA. I think the elephant in the room is MRSA. Yeah. So this is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So it's what that name is saying, that this um, staph bacteria is resistant to those penicillins like um, Fluclox that we talked about. So the classic treatment you're looking at, Beck, is... So this is where we bring in the vancomycin. Yeah, so most of the time you'll see vancomycin. There's some other options, including daptomycin and lisenolid and tycoplanin, but you won't see these... Yeah, lenezolid. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Yeah, the fact that I can't pronounce it means that I probably haven't used it very much. (laughs) So so the mechanism of MRSA for those playing at home is is a little bit different to the MSSAs. So these ones have an alteration in the penicillin binding sites because of a change to the MECA gene. So basically the place where the penicillin antibiotics would plug in doesn't fit anymore. But Beck, in, at my hospital, if someone's sick and they have an infection, we just give everyone meropenem. Won't that just cover it anyway? No. So you can't just marinate everyone in mero. Um, it's not sensitive to carbapenems at all. Cool. And another th- important thing, well, it's not really that important, but just remember. <laughs> We've just got a list of things that are very important if anyone wants to. Yeah, or maybe we could just say this is important before every sentence of the podcast, and I'm sure that'll work. But um, there's also... MRSA, most strains are kind of originated in hospitals and have kind of um, spread over the last kind of um, 30 years. But there are also community-acquired strains of MRSA and they have different resistance patterns. So you might see CAMRSA. Um, the other... Which acro- is community-acquired MRSA. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which originated in Australia. I don't think that's something to be proud of, mm. but anyway. And the cool thing about these is you can actually treat them with orals. So you can give... Bactrim is, is probably where we, we would start, which is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Um, but clindamycin, doxycycline, erythromycin are all options as well. Mm, but make sure you consult that with an ID yeah, consultant talk to because it. you can have emerging resistance and it's all more complicated than it looks when we first start learning about it. Um, the other um, acronyms you might hear about, VISA or VISA and VRSA. Um, so Visa, vancomycin intermediate staph aureus and VRSA, vancomycin resistant staph aureus. Mm. So as we said before, VMRSA, vancomycin is the main treatment and the Visa is um, kind of 
has intermediate resistance to it and um, VRSA obviously has better resistance to it. Yeah, I've actually never seen that. Do you know if we have that in Australia? Uh, this is off script here. So. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it personally, but I think I think we do. It's an emerging to, threat. I would have to check it. Emerging <laughs> threat. All Watch right, out. So, so I think key, key points from the last couple of minutes. Can you usually treat a staff off the bat with Ben Pen? No. No, 95% no. of the time they're going to be re- resistant to all um, penicillins. How do you treat MRSA? Vancomycin. And can you treat often a community-acquired MRSA with oral antibiotics? Yes, but just make sure, um, don't just go off the kind of antibiogram from the lab. Make sure you chat with an ID consultant. Phone a friend. Phone a friend, yep. A smart friend. <laughs> okay. Like Beck. Cool. So why why does any of this matter? What can happen if someone gets a, a staph bacteremia? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Like, why would we even make a podcast on this? Like, are we just going to go through every single specific bacteremia and make a podcast about it? No. No, probably uh, no. not, no. So... <laughs> So I understand that, that staph as an organism just hangs around a fair bit. So a lot of people have staph in their body somewhere. What's the deal there? Yeah, so up to 20 to 30% of people um, are persistently or intermittently colonized with Staphylococcus aureus, um, often on the, most commonly on their nasal na- nares, nares. In their nose. In their nose. Or in their throat. Oropharynx and sometimes on the skin. And... Um, I think another trap to fall into is when something's familiar, you're less worried about it. But Staph aureus bacteremia is really bad. Um, mm. And sorry, sorry to cut you off there. So people might be colonized with it in those places, but not in their blood. You can't get a Staph aureus colonization in the blood. Yeah. Um, so, so basically be worried. Yeah, that's really important. So blood should always be sterile. So, um, and someone with a Staph aureus bacteremia, the biggest... Um, Recent kind of meta-analysis they did showed they've got a 20% 30-day mortality. And other mm. studies have shown up to a 30% mortality. So this is really bad if someone has this. Mm. Yeah, so things are not looking good for Pamela Pamlington. What are the things that might happen to her now that she's got um, a Staph aureus bacteremia? What are the complications that you might see? Well, we'll talk more about this when we talk about kind of the clinical picture. But um, they can go into septic shock, have organ failure... Um, they can develop infective endocarditis. They can um, hematogen- hematogenously see their joints or prosthesis. Um, they can develop um, abscesses in almost anywhere, particularly epidural abscesses in the spleen, in the psoas um, area. Um, and they can also have a pneumonia. They can, you can have septic emboli going into the lungs and mm. having a pneumonia that way. So there's different infections that can cause a bacteremia of Staphylococcus aureus, but then a Staph aureus bacteremia can also cause infections in different places. So mm. it has to come from somewhere, but it can also go somewhere too. That's a really important point when you're thinking about this. So it can, it's kind of going in both directions. Any of these places can cause the bacteremia and the bacteremia can also go any of those places. Mm. Look, I wonder if we should um, go back again briefly to, to discuss MRS, MRSA a little bit more. Is it getting more common? We're doing lots of hand washing. Yeah. Um, well, that's good that you're doing it, Beck. <laughs> Hopefully everyone else is as well. Um, so I guess like most bacterial resistances, kind of over the last few decades, it's, um, we've had a big increase in MRSA. However, there's some really good news Um 
uh, intervention programs have actually been really shown to work with MRSA. So for example, um, in the UK from 2005, they put in this kind of multifaceted uh, elimination and control program for MRSA. And in about three years, they managed to halve their rates of MRSA. So some of the things they did for that is they put in hand hygiene programs, um, contact precautions, like standardized culture surveillance programs, IV line surveillance programs, um, also antibiotic stewardship programs um, with um, ID with an ID team, and also targeted decolonization of um, staff carriers. Mm. So I guess where you fit in here is basically just following the guidelines and um, wearing your gown and gloves and everything when you're meant to and, and washing your hands. Like none of this is really new. It's just doing the stuff that you know you're meant to do and doing it properly can help. Another, I guess, thing situation you might come up to as a junior doctor, if someone's got a history of MRSA, if they haven't been confirmed to be cleared, often we send off just a skin sample and a nasal swab just to check that the MRSA has been cleared and considered. And decolonization doesn't need six weeks of VANC. You can actually do it with some topical medications most of the time. So it's not a big deal. Sweet. So, Beck, you know, you're thirsty for your espresso martinis. It's five o'clock. You've got this call. You've got this gram-positive bacteria. But couldn't, isn't it probably just a contaminant anyway? Why don't you just go and think about it tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, it sort of depends on how good the martini special is tonight. But It's um, two, for, two for $15. It's oh, pretty good. Oh, yeah. but no. <laughs> um, so, so contaminants, they do happen, but you've got to treat it as a, as the real deal when it, when you don't know yet, and it looks like it's Staphylococcus, you treat it like it's Staph aureus. Contaminants represent only about 2.5% of positive blood cultures. So they're not actually as common as they seem to be. And some of the ways you can tell if it's a contaminant versus a pathogenic bacteremia, are to know the kind of bugs that tend to cause um, contamination so that's your coagulase negative staphylococcus Carinobacterium are some of the big ones whereas if it's a staph aureus you're probably um, studies have estimated around 1.5 percent are going to be a contaminant which is pretty low mm. so staph aureus not a contaminant and species is your really important um, criteria so these are often a bit controversial but some of the other ones that you can use are the proportion of cultures so that's sets of cultures so if you take a set from one place in the body and a set from another place or sets on different days. Um, and uh, the clinical picture, obviously, in the source, you know, if you um, drain an abscess in someone's spine and it grows something, it's probably a good sign there's something there. Um, other um, criteria used are time to growth. So um, if it takes a long time for the culture to grow, like three to five days, that... Um, uh, kind of inclines you more towards contaminant. Um, you can look at the anti antibiogram of organisms, particularly if you've got multiple sets. You can check if they've got the same resistance patterns and therefore suggest if it's the same organism, although that's still not particularly sensitive. You, you can have different kind of individual organisms with different patterns. Um, other criteria which have been used are number of bottles and also quantification. Um, some of these um, criteria have mixed kind of evidence for how well, they are actually establishing contamination. So sometimes it's kind of a bit of a weighing up and probably chat with a senior or an ID person to come to the final decision there. So to think about the clinical presentation of a Staph aureus bacteremia, let's think a little bit about Staph. So we won't go too into the kind of pathophysiology and things, but the key thing to remember about Staph aureus is it's very sticky. 
it adheses using something called tachoic acid, the surface polymer. But if you just think of it as kind of bundles, clusters of grapes, think about getting all that sticky grape juice all over your hands. And sticky means that once it's in your blood, it'll stick to different parts of your body. So that's why we talk a lot about seeding of the heart valves, of the joints, of other parts. Um, it's also got some other um, virulence factors, like it can form biofilms. It secretes antioxidizing proteins that present, prevent phagocytosis by neutrophils. Which is a really important one, actually. Yeah, note that down. Um, it's also got uh, secretes leukotoxins, which can lyse leukocytes. But the, I can, the key thing to remember is it's sticky like grapes. Um, and as we mentioned before, think about it, um, uh, I guess, think about staph infection in kind of moving in two directions. So, um, it, uh, as we said, it kind of, uh, the usual colonization sites are the oropharynx or the nose and sometimes on the skin. And so the most common, uh, way to get it is any break in that barrier. So cuts, so indwelling devices like IVs, particularly vascaths, is really important. Um, if they've had recent surgeries um, or they've had cardiac devices put in any other prosthesis, also injecting drug use is a um, really common way to get it. But it can be um, pretty much anything. So also it can be a pneumonia, a UTI, particularly in catheterized patients because it's so sticky, it gets around. So... Um, the history that you'll ask patients will be based around these kind of types of symptoms. So you'll be looking for kind of some kind of skin source. You'll be asking about cuts, ulcers, surgeries, lines that they've had. Um, if you're thinking about infective endocarditis, you can ask them about prolonged fever, um, signs of heart failure or um, valve dysfunction, you know, stigmata. Mm, and I, th- I think probably just in general, in someone with a bacteremia, you've got to know if they've got a fever, if they've had rigors, sweats, all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a really important, probably the key symptom. Um, but also, I guess, looking a bit broader for, they could have infections in any joints, so pain, swelling, tenderness. Um, they can uh, have epidural abscesses. Um, they could have abdominal pain, which belies an abscess that's under there. Um, they could have a headache if they've got septic emboli in their head. Really, you can kind of go on with any kind of symptom. Um, but just remember, um, they've got an in front to get into the blood. It's come from somewhere, from one of these places, and it can also go to any of these places. Mm. So you take a really thorough history. And as part of your history as well, you've got to go digging for some of the risk factors. So in the social history, you get an idea of why they might be more at risk. So have they been in hospital recently? Have they, are they an IV drug user? Um, and then some more sort of past history risks, uh, knowing about whether they do have ulcers, whether they have immunosuppression, do they have diabetes? Um, one of the major immunosuppression types that put people at increased risk of staph aureus are um, neutropenias from any, any cause. Yeah, steroid use as well can also um, predispose to it. And also a history of MRSA or staph infections as well. Um, so on examination, you're looking for signs of the infective endocarditis, the signs of CCF, the, the stigmata, you know, the classic signs on the hands. You're looking at all their joints. Um, you're looking um, uh, for any uh, emboli or abscesses for other parts of the body. So you're checking them for abdominal. So you, you're doing your general exam. So you're doing your neuro exam. You're doing your respiratory exam, checking for any septic emboli in the lungs. You're doing your abdominal exam, looking for any occult um, abscesses. Um, you're checking for bony tenderness, looking for epidural abscesses. 
pretty thorough exam. Yeah, so thorough history, thorough exam, get a good past history and take a social history. It's all just be a doctor. Yeah, be a doctor. <laughs> so <Yep. laughs> so with, with Pam, um, the case that we talked about earlier, why do you think that she has a Staph aureus bacteremia? And I guess the answer is probably, I don't know. Yeah, I guess sometimes it might be a bit unclear, and um, which can be a good sign if you don't have kind of a raging infective endocarditis. But um, I guess if we look back at Pam, some of the things we might think about, so she's had an IV line in, so um, has she been infected through the skin in that way? She doesn't have a portocast, she doesn't have any chronic ulcers. Um, does she have a staph pneumonia? Um, it's estimated around 3% of pneumonias are caused by staph, Staphylococcus aureus. Um, they're often post-viral intubation or um, septic em- emboli from staph aureus in another place. And we said that, oh, sorry. But I was just going to say, your classic post-viral uh, streptococcus pneumonia is still more common. Mm. And the thing, I guess, that was special in PAM is that she had a mitral valve, prosthetic mitral valve. So we're going to be digging pretty hard for endocarditis here. Mm, she's extremely high risk. Even if she didn't start off with an endocarditis, she's at very high risk of seeding her. Of a, getting one. Of getting one. Yeah. yeah. So what do we do? So your initial pre-espresso martini management, you want to go back to Pam, you take a history and exam, you check that she's hemodynamically stable, you check if there's any obvious sources for infection that you might remove, like any lines, um, uh, any IVs that look infected. Um, you find Pam's febrile, otherwise stable. Her IV line looks normal, no signs of infection, but it is slightly tender. Um, her legs are still swollen. There's no um, ulcers. They're swollen uh, from that heart failure, yeah? Yeah. Um, her hips, her hip replacement joints moving well and also all her other joints. She's got no abdominal tenderness. She's got no spinal tenderness. She's got no stigmata of infective endocarditis and no new murmur. And you check through her history and she's got the history of MRSA. She's got no history or she has a history? She has no history. No history. Okay. So, so you ring your consultant or ID reg and you start vancomycin and flucloxacillin through a new IV with repeat blood cultures. And you also um, send off the other old IV for cultures and order repeat cultures the next morning and you're free to go. Yeah, pretty much. So I think the, the key thing, if you're going to remember anything, is ask for help if you need. And then the other key thing is MRSA, which we're treating for presumptively, is treated by vancomycin and MSSA by flucloxacillin. Because we don't know what it is, we give both. Guidelines vary around the world, but in Australia, the therapeutic guidelines say that if you have something that looks like a staph in a blood culture, you give vancomycin and flucloxacillin. Yeah, until you know what it about is. That. Yep. Until you know what it is. So what does happen to Pam? So the next day, the culture returns as coagulase positive. So what does that mean? Is that good or bad? That's bad. That's bad. staph aureus. So um, the repeat blood culture, the positive the following morning is also positive on the gram stain. So Pam has staph aureus bacteremia. So what are the chances that she has infective endocarditis back? Well, it depends on where you're reading, um, but basically they're pretty high. So in, uh, in the general population, sort of 10 to 15%, but in patients like Pam who have a prosthetic heart valve, about a third can have infective endocarditis at outset, but many of them develop within the first month and a half or so. And mitral valve is particularly susceptible. Mm, so she's got a mitral valve replacement, so she's very at risk. And as Beck said, like the numbers you'll see are very different among different cohorts because, as we said, this disease has kind of different patterns and can come from the heart or can go to the heart. But you're looking at, you know, 30, 40% chance. So she's got a really high risk of having infective endocarditis if she doesn't already have it. 
So we go looking for it and we do a TTE and there's no vegetation. So transthoracic echo. There's no vegetations. Phew. Okay, good. So we're done. Yeah, it would have been a lot longer podcast if she had uh, infective endocarditis, right? So now we know she doesn't have it. Is that right? No. So there are some patients who we can stop with a TTE. Um, but in a patient like Pam, we're going to need to do the much more sensitive transesophageal echo. So the the guidelines, if anyone's interested, um, any BPTs out there, the guidelines from JAMA last year came out and they said that low-risk patients who only need a transthoracic are those who've had a nosocomial acquisition of a bacteremia. If they've had sterile blood cultures within um, 48 hours, they don't have any intracardiac devices, they're not on dialysis, and they don't have any clinical signs of endocarditis or secondary foci of infection. So those patients can just get a TTE. If you're not a BPT, don't worry about any of that. And probably the thing to learn is that you always need a toe. Yeah, unless they're really low risk from using those criteria. Because the toe, as as Beck said, is much more sensitive at picking up. It's um, And the peak period, out of curiosity, is five to seven days. It has the best sensitivity post the first bacteremia. But if you've got a really small valve vegetation size, um, you might not see it on the transthoracic. But let's move on. Hmm. So... Um, other investigations you could consider would be, um, and this is obviously depending on the clinical picture, but you could consider doing a CT, chest, abdo, pelvis, and spine um, to look for other abscesses. So CT spine is not the best test looking for an epidural abscess, but if you're That's worried true. clinically about that, you would do an MRI spine. Yeah, correct. And if you're concerned about any joints, you'd image those as well. You'd look at the sputum, see if there's any staph in the sputum. And we need to keep in mind what we've mentioned a couple of times before that we have to think about where it's come from, but also where it's going to. So what are the risks of hematogenous seeding of this infection to somewhere else, like her joint? So if the joint prosthesis was put in more than 12 months ago, it's very unlikely that the joint's the original source. But some studies have shown um, up to 34% hematogenous seeding of um, prosthetic joints. So that's a hip replacement or a knee replacement. Um, but in, within that, there was double rate for knees as for hips. And if they've just got pins and rods in their leg, it's much lower, but still there. So that particular study um, in Belgium, no, actually it was an international study, um, showed a 7% rate as against 34% for a joint replacement. So um, Has prosthetic joint is bad. Yeah, so almost a, probably about a third chance that um, it'll seed her joint. So we've talked a bit about how you can identify what Staphylococcus aureus looks like. We've talked about what the clinical picture tends to be, and we've heard the initial kind of thing about what happened with with Pam. But what happens? What happened next? Did we ever get that full culture back? What's the susceptibility? So it's MSSA, which is awesome news for Pam because she's got lower mortality than if it had been MRSA. Excellent. So Beck, do we just continue vancomycin? Isn't it really powerful? No. So this goes back to what you were saying earlier that even though vancomycin has better cover for MRSA, if the patient doesn't have MRSA, they've actually got a mortality benefit by going back to a more targeted therapy. So vancomycin is associated with a 35% higher mortality than flucloxacillin in MSSA. So we changed PAM over to fluclox monotherapy. Yeah, perfect. Um, So what happens next to PAM? From the third day, her blood cultures are negative. And she would give her a toe on the sixth day, which is also negative for vegetations. Oh, what a relief. Excellent. 
And then repeat chest x-ray on day seven shows resolution of the low bar consolidation. So Pam feels really well and her daughter comes to you and says, how long does she need to be on antibiotics for, Beck? And what do you say? I say, I'll just uh, make some calls and I'll get back to you. So this is the kind of thing where you often just really need to be guided by the ID team at your hospital. Mm, and this is where, I guess, staph bacteremia differs from other infections. Um, what we want to um, decide is whether we think it's an uncomplicated staph aureus bacteremia or a complicated one. Even if it's an uncomplicated one, we still want to give her 14 days of IV flucloxacillin from a um, first negative blood culture. And if it's complicated, depending on the cause, it'll be up to four to six weeks. So um, obviously this decision will be made with um, ID involvement, but it's very dependent on the source of the bacteremia. In, term, in calling it complicated or uncomplicated, we're talking about if there's any kind of an endocarditis, a joint infection, a bone infection, an abscess, anything like that would describe it as complicated. And we've also got some general criteria, which are really similar to the ones we used before for deciding whether to do the echo. So bacteria cleared within 48 hours, um, defervescing of the fever within three days, you know, no infective endocarditis, no prosthetic heart valves, no evidence of um, infective metastases. So is um, Pam uncomplicated or complicated? She is complicated because she's got a prosthetic heart valve. So we send her home with hospital in the home and she gets a full six-week course of flucloxacillin from that first negative blood culture. Her valves and joints never got seated. We saved her life. Yeah, so all good news today. Just thought we'd mix it up a bit. Keep you on your toes. Not everyone dying every single week. Thank God. I made conversations. So time for the espresso martini? Yep. Chin chin. Sounds good. Oh no. Well, what's that? That's micro. <laughs> the patient in the bed next to Pam. <laughs> that is even cheesier than oh, I no, thought it would another be. Another one. But, oh. I just told them to order it for me. I know, Beth. <laughs> this is terrible. So I just wanted, I just thought we should put this in because I think um, when when you are the cover intern, you're never really sure how how much to do when you get this page from Micro um, saying that there's a positive blood culture. So just as a general thing, you get that page. What you need to do is you've got to look up the results on the system yourself, see it written down, find out exactly what was cultured. If it's been cultured before every day for the last two weeks or if this is something new, you've got to check the patient's file, get an idea of what's been going on with them, whether the home team are already aware of this or if this is news, if they've had a reasonable workup, if they're clinically stable, if they're on the right antibiotics. And even if they, if all those things look like they've been done, it's worth making a note in the file that the cultures are still positive because the home team need to know that. It's going to happen a lot on your night shifts yep. and your cover shifts. Yeah, it's a really common situation. So all those things Beck said is what like a, a good junior doctor will do as opposed to a lazy one <laughs> or a okay. busy one. Let's be nice. Yeah, it's, and it gets really busy. All right, so just some revision points for anyone who was napping. Staph aureus is a coagulase positive gram positive cocci in clusters. So Staph aureus is a co very common and very dangerous bacteria with 20 to 30% mortality and very high risk of complications, including infective endocarditis, joint prosthesis infections, abscesses, osteomyelitis. It is never a contaminant, except 1.5% of the time. Yep. Gram-positive cocci on blood cultures should always be treated empirically as staphbacteremia with vancomycin um, and flucloxacillin. And remember that it goes two ways. Bacteremia can develop as a complication of a primary staph aureus infection, 
I can also seed to other places, particularly thinking of um, prosthesis, heart and bone and abscesses, also pneumonia in our case. And in Staph aureus bacteremia, you have to rule out infective endocarditis with at least a transthoracic echo and in most patients, a transesophageal echo. And you need to talk to your infectious diseases team. Mm, it's actually evidence-based, that consult. Um, and um, in Staph aureus bacteremia, you're talking about protracted intravenous antibiotics, at least two weeks, up to six weeks or so. Happy ending. Yeah. For once, I think Survives. we've had too many dead patients on med conversations <laughs> recently. Yeah, um, I actually hope this podcast will be a bit shorter, but as usual, it seemed to kind of stretch out. I think there was some kind of good general learning points in there, hopefully. Hope you enjoyed it. Give us a shout out on our Facebook page. If you like it, if you could leave us a review on iTunes, that would make us very happy. And as always, let us know if there's anything else you want us to cover. Happy holidays. I hope everyone went well in their exams. Thank you. Signing out.